Chapter Twenty Four of the Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donna Stewart, Seattle, Washington. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter Twenty Four Mexican Methods of Cultivation first steamship through the golden gate the argonauts or boys of forty-nine a letter from the states john baptiste jakey leaves us the first american school in sonoma by the first of march eighteen forty nine carpenters had the frame of grandma's fine new two-story house enclosed and the floors partly laid Neighbors were hurrying to get their fields ploughed and planted, those without farming implements following the Mexicans' crude method of ploughing the ground with wooden prongs and harrowing in the seed by dragging heavy brush over it. They gladly turned to any tool that would complete the work by the time the roads to the mountain should be passable and the diggings clear of snow. Their expectations might have been realized sooner if a bluff old launch captain with an eye to business for himself in San Francisco had not appeared on the scene shouting ahoy to everybody. I say, a steamship anchored in the Bay of San Francisco two days ago. She's the California, steamed out of New York Harbor with merchandise, stopped at Panama, there took aboard 350 waiting passengers that had cut across country, a mixture of men from all parts of the United States who have come to carry off the gold diggings root and branch. Others are coming in shiploads as fast as they can. Now mark my words and mark them well. Provisions is going to run mighty short, and if this valley wants any, it had better send for them pretty damn quick. By return boat, farmers, shopkeepers, and carpenters hastened to San Francisco. All were eager for supplies from the first steamship that had entered the Golden Gate. The first, it may be added that most of them, even those of a seagoing past, had ever seen. During the absence of husbands, we little girls were loaned separately nights to timid wives who had no children to keep them company. Georgia went earlier and stayed later than I, because Grandma could not spare me in the evenings until the cows were turned out, and she needed me in the mornings before sunrise. Those who borrowed us made our stays so pleasant that we felt at home in many different houses. Once, however, I encountered danger on my early homeward trip. I had turned the bend in the road, could see the smoke curling out of Grandma's chimney, and knew that every nearer house was closed. In order to avoid attracting the attention of a suspicious-looking cow on the road, I was running stealthily along a rail fence when, unexpectedly, I came upon a family of sleeping swine, and before I was aware of danger from that direction, was set upon and fell to the ground by a vicious beast impelled i know not how but quick as thought i rolled over and over and over and when i opened my eyes i was on the other side of the fence and an angry noisy bristling creature was glaring at me through the rails quivering like a leaf and for a time unable to rise i lay upon the green earth facing the morning sky with strange sensations and wonderment i tried to think what might have happened if i had not rolled what if that space between the fence and ground had been too narrow to let my body through? What if, on the other hand, it had been wide enough for that enraged brute to follow? Too frightened to cry and still trembling, I made my way to the end of the field and climbed back over the fence near home. Grandma was greatly startled to see my blanched face and the rumpled and soiled condition of my clothes. 
after i related my frightful experience she also felt that had it not been for that fence i should have been torn to pieces she explained however that i probably would not have been attacked had i not startled the old mother so suddenly that she believed her young in danger when our menfolk returned from san francisco they were accompanied by many excited treasure-seekers anxious to secure pack-animals to carry their effects to the mines they were made welcome and in turn furnished us news of the outer world and distributed worn copies of american and foreign newspapers which our hungry-minded pioneers read and re-read so long as the lines held together those light-hearted newcomers who danced and gaily sang oh susanna don't you cry for me i'm bound to california with a tin pan on my knee were the first we saw of that vast throng of gold-seekers who flocked to our shores within a twelvemonth and who have since become idealized in song and story as the argonauts the boys of forty-nine they were unlike either our pioneer or our soldier friends in style of dress and manner nor had they come to build homes or develop the country they wanted gold to carry back to other lands some had expected to find it near the bay of san francisco some to scoop it up out of the river-beds that crossed the valleys and others to shovel it from ravines and mountain-sides when told of the difficulties before them their impatience grew to be off that they might prove to western plodders what could be done by eastern pluck and muscle such packing as those men did mother's bible and wife and baby's daguerreotype not infrequently started to the mines in the coffee-pot or in the miner's boots hanging across the mule's pack the sweetheart's lock of hair affectionately concealed beneath the hat-lining of its faithful wearer caught the scent of the old clay pipe stuck in the hat-band with the opening season all available indians of both sexes were hired as gold-diggers and trudged along behind their employers and our town was again reduced to a settlement of white women and children but what a difference in the feeling of our people we now heard regularly from the bay city and entertained transients from nearly every part of the globe and these would loan us books and newspapers and frequently store unnecessary possessions with us until they should return from the mines san francisco had a regular post office one day its postmaster forwarded a letter addressed to ex-governor boggs which the latter brought out and read to grandma she did not as usual put her head out of the window and call us but came from the house wiping her eyes and asked if we wanted to be put in a big ship and sent away from her and grandpa and jakey greatly alarmed we exclaimed no no grandma no taking us by the hand she led us into the house seated herself and drew one of us to each side then requested the governor to read the letter again we too did not understand all it said but enough to know that it had been written by our own dear aunt elizabeth poor who wanted governor boggs to find her sister's three little orphaned girls and send them back to her by ship to massachusetts it contained the necessary directions for carrying out her wish grandma assured the governor that we did not want to leave her nor would she give us up she said she and her husband and jakey had befriended us when we were poor and useless and that we were now beginning to be helpful moreover they had prospered greatly since we had come into their home and that their luck might change if they should part from us she further stated that she already had riches in her own right which we should inherit at her death 
the governor spoke of schools and diverse matters pertaining to our welfare then promised to explain by letter to aunt elizabeth how fortunately we were situated this event created quite a flutter of excitement among friends grandpa and jakey felt just as grandma did about keeping us georgia and i were assured that in not being allowed to go across the water we had escaped great suffering and perhaps drowning by shipwreck still we did wish that it were possible for us to see aunt elizabeth whom mother had taught us to love and who now wanted us to come to her i told georgia that i would learn to write as fast as i could and send her a letter so that she would know all about us we now imagined that we were quite large girls for grandma usually said before going away children you know what there is to do and i leave everything in your care we did not realize that this was her little scheme in part to keep us out of mischief but we knew that upon her return she would see and call attention to what was left undone once when we were home alone and talking about endless work and aching bones as we had heard grown-up folks complain of theirs we were interrupted by a bareback rider who did not tie up under the live oak but came to the shade of the white oak in front of us at the kitchen door after a cheery howdy-do and a handshake he exclaimed i heard at napa that you lived here and my pony has made a hard run to give me this side of you we were surprised and delighted for the speaker was john baptiste who had wintered with us in the sierras we asked him to dismount take a seat under the tree and let us bring him a glass of milk he declined graciously then with a pleased expression drew a small brown paper parcel from his trousers pocket and handed it to us leaned forward clasped his arms around his pony rested his head on its neck and smilingly watched georgia unwrap it and two beautiful bunches of raisins came to view one for each he would not touch a single berry nor let us save any he asked us to eat them then and there so that he could witness our enjoyment of the luxury that he had provided for this our first meeting in the settlement never had we seen raisins so large translucent and delicious they seemed far too choice for us to have and john was so poorly dressed and pinched in features that we hesitated about eating them but he would have his way and in simple language told us that he wanted them to soften the recollection of the hungry time when he came into camp empty-handed and discouraged also to fulfil his assurance to our mother that he would try to keep us in sight and give us of the best that he could procure his last injunctions were be good little girls always remember your mother and father and don't forget john baptiste he was gone when grandma got back and she was very serious when told what had occurred in her absence she rarely spoke to us of our mother and feared it might lessen our affection for herself if others kept the memory of the dead fresh in our minds there were many other happenings before the year closed that caused me to think a great deal grandpa spent less time at the shop he bought himself a fleet-footed horse which he named antelope and came home oftener to talk to grandma about money they had loaned major prudon to send to china for merchandise also about a bar-room which he was fitting up near the butcher shop for a partner next he bought faithful charlie a large bay horse with friendly eyes and long black mane and tail also a small blue farm wagon in which georgia and i were to drive about the fields when sent to gather loose bark and dry branches for baking fires we were out for that purpose the day that we saw grandpa ride away to the mines but we missed seeing jakey steal off with his bunch of cows he felt too badly to say good-bye to us 
I was almost heartbroken when I learned that he was not coming back. He had been my comforter in most of my troubles, had taught me to ride and drive the horse, shown me the wood-duck's nest in the hollow of our white oak tree, and the oriole's pretty home swinging from a twig in the live oak, also where the big white-faced owls lived. He had helped me to gather wildflowers, made me whistles from branches cut from pussy-willows, and had yodeled for me as joyfully as for loved ones in his alpine home. Everything that he had said and done meant a great deal more to me now, and kept him in mind as I went about alone or with Grandma doing the things that had been his to do. She now molded her cheeses in smaller forms, and we had fewer cows to milk. When the season for collecting and drying herbs came, Georgia and I had opportunity to be together considerably. It was after we had picked the first drying of sage and were pricking our fingers on the saffron pods that Grandma, in passing, with her apron full of Castilian rose petals, stopped and announced that if we would promise to work well and gather the sage leaves and saffron tufts as often as necessary, she would let us go to a real school which was about to open in town. Oh, dear, to go to school, to have books and slate and pencil, what more could be wished? Yes, we would get up earlier, work faster before time to go, and hurry home after lessons were over. And I would carry the book Aunt Lucy had given me. It was all arranged, and Grandma went to town to buy slates, pencils, speller, and a stick of wine-colored ribbon to tie up our hair. When the anticipated hour came, there were great preparations that we might be neat and clean and ready on time. Our hair was parted in four equal divisions. The front braids, tied with ribbon, formed a U at the back of the neck, and we wore new calico dresses and sunbonnets, and carried lunch for two and a curious little basket which Grandma must have brought with her from Switzerland. Joyfully we started forth to the first American school opened in Sonoma. Alas, it was not what our anticipations had pictured. The schoolroom was a dreary adobe, containing two rows of benches so high that, when seated, we could barely touch the earthen floor with our toes. The schoolmaster told us that we must hold our slates on our laps and our open books in the right hand and not look at the pictures, but study all the time and not speak, even to each other, without permission. His face was so severe, his eyes so keen, and his voice so sharp that I was afraid of him. He had a chair with a back to it and a table to hold his books, yet he spent most of his time walking about with a narrow strap of rawhide in his hand, and was ever finding someone whose book drooped or who was whispering, and the stinging bite of that strap would call the erring to order. The Misses Boggs, Lewis, Smith, and Bone were pretty young ladies, and brought their own chairs and a table to sit around, and when they whispered, the master never saw them. And when they missed lessons, he didn't keep them in, nor make them stand on the floor. I learned my lessons well enough, but Grandma was terribly shocked because I got strapped nearly every day. But then I sat between Georgia and the other little girls in our row, and had to deliver messages from those on both sides of me, as well as to whisper a little on my own account. Finally, Grandma declared that if I got a whipping next day, she would give me a second one after reaching home. So I started in the morning with the intention of being the best girl in school. But we had hardly settled in line for our first lesson when Georgia whispered behind her book, 
Eliza, see, Mary Jane Johnson has got my nice French card, with the double queens on it, and I can't get it. Forgotten were my good resolutions. I leaned out of line and whispered louder than I meant, Mary Jane Johnson, that is my sister's card, and you must give it back to her. She saw the master watching, but I did not, until he called me to hold up my hand. For once I begged, Please excuse me, I won't do it again. But he wouldn't, and I felt greatly humiliated because I knew the large girls had heard me and were smiling. After recess, a new boy arrived, little Willie McCracken, whom we had seen on the plains and known at Sutter's Fort, and he knew us as soon as he reached his seat and looked around. In a short time I nudged Georgia and asked her if I hadn't better roll him the little knot of dried apples that Grandma had put in the basket for my lunch. She said yes, if I wanted to. So I wiggled the basket from under the seat with my foot, and soon thereafter my bit of hospitality was on its way to the friend I was glad to see again. Instead of his getting it, however, the master stepped down and picked it up, with the hand that didn't have the strap in it. So, instead of being the best, I was the worst child in school, for not one had ever before received two strappings in a forenoon. It must have been our bad day, for Georgia felt her very first bite from the strap that afternoon, and on the way home volunteered not to tell on me if Grandma didn't ask. Yet Grandma did, the first thing, and when Georgia reluctantly said, Yes, Grandma looked at me and shook her head despairingly. But when I announced that I had already had two strappings and Georgia one, she burst out laughing and said she thought I had had enough for one day. A few weeks later, the large boys drove the master out of school on account of his cruelty to a little fellow who had played truant. In that dingy schoolroom, Georgia and I later attended the first Protestant Sunday school and church service held in Sonoma. End of chapter 24 Recorded by Donna Stewart, Seattle, Washington